Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week I'm joined by David Fishoff. Now, to say that David has led an interesting life is quite an understatement. David has worked with some of the best musicians that the industry has to offer, producing for The Monkees, Ringo Starr of The Beatles, Roger Daltrey of The Who, and Alice Cooper, and many, many more. He was also a sports agent, representing some of the best athletes in New York, including one of my favorite New York Giants players of all time, Phil Simms. And David has quite a story to tell about the time he negotiated against the Yankees' legendary owner, George Steinbrenner, on behalf of his client, Lou Pinella. David also runs Rock Fantasy Camp, featuring musicians such as Joe Perry, Brian Wilson, Kiss, Slash, Def Leppard, and more. It's truly a life-changing experience for people, and this experience is actually documented in a truly wonderful movie that I recommend everyone see called Rock Camp. And trust me, you do not have to be a rock fan to enjoy this film. You just have to be the type of person who loves to see the human spirit being lifted. I hope your spirit is lifted when you finish listening to my conversation with David Fishoff. David, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? Doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me, and uh, we're excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you, absolutely. And first, let me congratulate you uh, on the, the, the movie Rock Camp. I think it's a fantastic film, and what I loved about it is it has so much to do with the human connection, with how we treat each other and how we think about our lives, how we motivate ourselves. And it's actually there that I'd like to begin. I want to ask you about something that you said in the film. You said, I attribute my success to being in synagogue at a young age with my father. Can you speak a little bit to that and just expand upon it a little? So what I meant is that, you know, being being a child, um, all these gentlemen were basically these retired guys coming to synagogue and they were like 65, 70 and I was 13. And I had to, um, you know, I befriended these people and I really learned how to talk to an adult uh, at a young age, um, which later helped me talk to rock stars and to celebrities because um, part of the problem that most people have with, with what most of the problem the celebrities have with, with, with folks is that people don't know how to talk to them. They, they, they either lie to them, they don't tell them the truth, um, they exaggerate, um, and, and the rock star and the athlete, they just want the truth. They just want to hear the good news or the, and the bad news. You know, okay, you didn't sell tickets tonight, and, or, you know, you're not hitting, <laughs> or, you know, people want the truth. And I think that, uh, you know, rock stars in particular, um, they want to be told the truth and, and, you know, learn how to sit and talk to them. And I have to say that, you know, most people don't know how to do that. You know, they, they, and, um, but going to synagogue with my dad and learning to talk to older people and, and, you know, facing them and it just really helped me. I, I really believe helped me sit down with a Ringo star, helped me sit down with a Roger Daltrey and, you know, just talk to, talk to them as normal human beings. Yeah. And you, you, if you're 13 and you're speaking with you know 50, 65 year olds, uh, especially at synagogue, you you have to develop a sense of knowing what you're talking about, you know. So you have to humbly learn, and then learn how to engage others as well. So I got to imagine that that even just the structuring around speaking about religion played a role here as well. 
and I, and I was just a fun young kid and not be intimidated and, you know, lay it out straight. And, uh, you, you know, I learned that there was a guy named George Travis and um, he was really my, one of my mentors and he's still Bruce Springsteen's production manager. He does everything for Bruce. Um, and, you know, I hired him to uh, do my Ringo tour and, um, I always admire the way he spoke to the artist, you know, he sat him down, he said, okay, here's the opportunity. Um, you know, how big do you want your stage? Uh, what kind of production do you want? And this is not going to work. Uh, what kind of playing do you want? Um, okay. It's not going to work. This will work. And you know, the, or, you know, they would just be honest with them and that's really what they want to hear. Instead of, you know, the tour managers of today, uh, I call them yes men. You know, the artist says to them, hey, can we fly here? And I want to go here for dinner. And sure, and the tour manager says, sure, let's go. You know, then afterwards he sees the, the airline bill is $25,000 more. He said, well, I asked you. And that's what you said. Uh, you said, you know, you asked me, can we go? And I said, yes. I didn't tell you that it was going to cost you 25000 more. Or, um, you know, how many times I've been, I stayed at a hotel and, uh, the, 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 I remember the, one of my first tours, and we were staying at the Plaza Antonay in, in Paris. And uh, we all walked out, and the crew and everything, and, and you know, someone said to the artist, he said, what are we all doing here? I said, well, they asked you, where do you want to stay? And where do you want the crew to stay? And he said, the Plaza Antonay, you know? So we booked the Plaza Antonay. Instead of the, the right thing the tour manager should have said is, okay, you want to stay at the Plaza Antonay and $2,500 a night, why don't you stay there? And the rest of us will stay at a Holiday Inn in Paris, which is just as nice, and it will cost three hundred dollars. So you won't be paying for the, the crew guy to to be you know living you know for twenty five hundred dollars a night. You can't even. I remember staying in one of those rooms, and I called my mom, and I said, "Mom, I don't know what the difference is a twenty five hundred night room is a three hundred dollars night room here in London, you know, at the Dorchester." So what I meant by that in the film was just learning to speak to people and telling them the truth. And, you know, and hearing and not telling people what they want to say, what, what they want to hear. Do you think that the that the 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 yes men who have come around so much, wh which do you think came first here? Kind of a chicken and egg question here. Is it that the the entertainers might have wanted them and that fed it? Or do you think it was something about the culture of the representation, the yes men culture that fed into the entertainers? I think it's both, you know, I think that a lot of entertainers, you know, they, they just want to, you know, people say, oh, you're great, you're great, you're great all day. And they tell the athletes how great they are, you know, all day. And instead of telling them, you know, you got to be truthful, you know, you know, telling them the truth. I mean, every day you read about another athlete and, you know, just finished reading this, uh, about this sad situation in, in, in Las Vegas with this ball player. I mean, and, um, you know, and if, he, if his representation would have said to him, listen, stop drinking. You can't be going out at night at three o'clock in the morning and partying. Um, and someone would have told him that instead of just taking his money. And, you know, so people would be alive today. So I was always the type of, you know, when I was an agent for my athletes or um, and my entertainers, I, I really told them the truth, you know, and I, I'd say, hey, save your money. Uh, it's not it's going to end. So stop spending like this. And I'm thank God with all my clients today. I, you know, I talk to all my athletes or I put them in. I, I never do their investments, but I recommend them that they should be careful to save, 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 because the day is going to end. And the other 
there are a lot of people in the entertainment business and the sports business who encourage their people, oh, spend money, it's okay. A, it keeps them working, especially so many entertainers. You know, they, 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 oh, can I buy a house? Yeah, buy this house for $8 million. Yeah, buy this house, it's okay. With the, with the reasoning behind it is, now they're going to have to go keep working to pay it off. And I'm going to make more commissions. And I'm going to keep them on the road. And so that's really what I meant in the film, is just being learning to be honest with these people. And here I was, a young guy, and I'm 20 years old, 21, and I'm dealing with professional athletes and 25 dealing with rock stars and and 30 years old dealing with a, with a beetle and you know and just learning how to talk to people and and just be honest with them that's fantastic and and, and i appreciate the insight too it's really interesting uh, well i i have to admit i'm one of those people who became huge monkeys fans because of the revival that you did. And and I'm curious about because I'm I'm always interested in great ideas. I love people who have great ideas. I just find that so fascinating. What what do you think people were hungry for with them so much at that particular time? And what did you see in them that made you think, I've got to do this right now? First of all, I have to tell you, in all my years, in this past year promoting the film. The number one, more people ask me about the monkeys than anything. <laughs> so it comes to show you how what an effect they had on society. And it, it, I have to say it because it's upsetting that they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because yeah, it's a crime. So many fans. It's a crime because, you know, U2 does a concert in, at Dodger Stadium and uh, Davy Jones is in the audience. They know he's there. They call him up on stage to sing with them. And 52,000 people at Dodger Stadium are singing with Bono and Davy Jones, Daydream Believer. So what happened with the Monkees was I was doing these oldie shows. And I was, I, I was packaging the tours before they were doing Coachellos and all these packages. And, and I got the idea to put, put four bands on the road and Happy Together Tour and only put, perform hit songs. And I did the association, the Turtles and the Grassroots and... Um, you know, every year I would come out with a tour in 84, and then I did another one in 85. And I remember playing Albany. We played Albany a lot, and uh, all upstate New York, Utica. And we toured the world, and and I was in uh, Kansas City one night at 2 o'clock in the morning watching uh, the um, old Monkeys TV show. And that's when I got the idea, oh, you know what, let me get the Monkeys. Let me see if I can get the Monkeys. They'd be great for one of my oldie packages. So... Because that was the only show my parents, my dad was a, uh, a cantor, and, and my mom, they were strict with me, was watching TV, and they wouldn't let me watch um, wrestling. I mean, to this day, Bruno San Martino was my idol. <laughs> they wouldn't let me watch the, the wrestling matches. They thought I was too wild. and But they let me watch the Monkees. That was the only show I was able to watch during the week. So I loved the Monkees. They just, they resonated with me. They were just happy. They were fun. And, you know, I knew them more, more than the, I knew the Beatles. And... Uh, so I, I really always a fan. And um, so I decided to um, tr you know, do my information and I, I tracked down Peter Tork. I, everyone told me he lives in New York. So I invited him to come to one of my shows with the Turtles and I put him on the stage and he was jumping and uh, so happy the whole night. And I said, do you think you could, we can do this? And he said, I love this. Let's go. I'll take you. I said to him, well, we need Mickey and we need Davey. So, well, they live in England. I said, I'll fly you over there. Let's go over and meet them. Now, the three of them never really spoke for a long time. Um, and no one had used the name The Monkees in 20 years. And so first I went over to see Davey. And I saw Mickey and um, made them an offer. 
uh, to tour. And then I realized they didn't even own their name, the monkeys. So it was owned by Columbia Pictures. Uh, it's a, it was a TV show. And that logo they owned was owned by Bob Ravelson and, and, and Bert Schneider. They produced the TV show. They owned that logo. So I called the head of Columbia Pictures in Los Angeles, and he said, uh, David, you know, we don't, the person controls this in New York. So I called the guy in New York, and and, and he just, he knew who I was, and he, and uh, I made a deal with him. And he, you know, he said to me, why did you buy it from me? No one's ever asked me in 20 years for the name The Monkees. And I said, well, I'm doing these oldies shows, and I want to do it. And so now I put this tour together. I put the Gary Puckett and Union Gap, and I think the um, the Grassroots and the Herman Hermits and the Monkees. And um, that's going to be my tour over the summer. And I was doing these summer tours. And unbeknownst to me, I'm on the seventh floor of 1775 Broadway in Manhattan. And on the eighth and ninth floor is a new network called MTV. And I'm going up and down the elevator with Bob Pittman, um, Tom Freston, people running the network. And everybody knew me in New York as a sports agent. I represented eight of the New York Giants. And, you know, when the Giants won a game, I was, you know, I'm in the elevator. People smile at me. Well, when they lost, they're looking like, damn you, you know, like, I'm not, I'm just the agent, you know. And I, I, I suppose what happened was they ended up betting the game. They lost. So they, people love those Giants. They just got pissed off. And Giants had some tough years that year and in those years. And uh, so I ran upstairs and uh, I said, to, I knocked on Mr. Pittman's door and I said, Mr. Pittman, I'm David Fishoff and I'm doing the uh, Monkees uh, as a live tour. And um, I heard that, um, that you guys bought the, the episodes um, and then you're going to do 24 hours of monkeys in the next few weeks. And you're going to keep showing the episodes. And he says, sit down kid. And, uh, you know, back then it was like a new company. He says, he says, you promote my new fledging network MTV and all your ads and I'll promote you on MTV on my television station. So I said, great. And I'm promoting it and I'm putting it all my ads and I'm planning to go on sale. And he, he shows 24 hours of monkeys. And then he announces my summer tour of the monkeys. I go on sale and um, normally I sold three to 4,000 seats for these oldie shows. And that was it. And um, I go on sale in Chicago. I sold 28,000 tickets. <laughs> Detroit sells 30,000 tickets. Um, you know, we play these amphitheaters and, you know, there were 5,000 seats on, on the, you know, below the amphitheater and then the whole lawn. Well, it turns out that every little girl came screaming and running home and, and uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the, Mothers would yell at them, where were you all night? Mommy, I was waiting for monkey tickets. And the mother said, well, I want to go. And I didn't, mom, you know who the monkeys are? I said, yeah, you know, it was a 20-year-old man. He was incredible. It was just like, it was really unbelievable, Joe. It's 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 even mind-boggling to today because no one ever had, you know, was able to see the success of something like that that was just so hot. And, and you know, they, they just, they resonate with so many people. They make you happy. You know, I was watching a video yesterday. I just get happy when you listen to the monkeys. Yeah, I was just watching uh, another episode where they were in in prison or in jail like uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and I, I watched them on MTV. It was one of the few things we were allowed to watch on MTV at the time, right? Because there was a little bit of, you know, parents were a little worried about what MTV was. But we could always watch the monkeys. And... You, you hit the nail on the head with the idea that it resonated in a way with people. And there, there is a charm and there's a happiness in there 
that was very natural to all of them. They just did such a good job of just almost making you believe this is me and this is who we are. And if you buy into the band, you buy us. Right. Yeah. Right. And everyone identified with their, their favorite one. And mine was Davey. And, uh, and I guess my name's David. So I just, I adore them. Uh, you know, I miss Peter. Peter was a really tremendous human being. You know, he was, he had a lot of demons in him as everyone does, but it's a, he had a heart and intelligence that was just amazing. Mickey's a very smart guy. You know, he's all, he's a businessman, and but he's got an amazing voice. And he was the lead singer of the band. And um, Davey was just, had a heart of gold. He loved his fans. And, you know, he also had his, his issues. And, you know, what happened was they became so big, so fast overnight. They were the like first childhood stars. Um, and handling it was just really hard. You know, it's it's not like the Beatles, we went to high school together or, you know, any of these bands. We grew up together in a garage. You know, one day they were they were in a room and the next day they were huge stars. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, I couldn't tell you a, a negative thing that I ever read about them. How, you know, you should let them in the Hall of Fame simply for that alone. Listen. How they handled themselves. They were just, they always came across as genuine, beautiful people. You know, Alice Cooper, he said to me one day, he says, you know, we were partying up in, in, in Sunset Strip. And, and he says, we partied with, you know, with, with drugs, you know, it was back then. He says, I cannot even tell you what the monkeys were doing. He said, everyone thought we were we were the big drug guys. Those guys, they 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 taught us, you know. And it just, you know, it was just really funny because you know, no one played, no one ever looked at the monkeys that way, and you know, the eighties. The but they, they were amazing. Uh, you know, they still bring happiness to people. Um, do I agree that they're touring now without Davey and calling it the monkeys? Um, I think they were honest about it and say, hey, you know, we're the monkeys, but we're just two of them. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, if, if, as long as they bring happiness and they bring smiles and hit songs and you walk away from there and you feel good, that's to me what show business is about. You know, uh, you know, I see Bob Dylan's going on tour now and uh, I got to tell you, he's, he, will he do any of his hits for, that you know him for? No, he'll do the whole new record and um, you walk away saying, oh, Bob Dylan, he was awesome. Yeah, he was, you're lying. You want, you came to hear Blow It In The Wind, you know? So when you went to see the monkeys, you got to really see, you got to see those hits. Yeah. Yeah. Every so often you'll hear, and it's unfortunate from the fan perspective, always you'll hear someone who um, will have a huge hit and they'll, they'll say, we regret ever recording it because then we just became that hit. You know, the one that always comes to my mind is the, the band Extreme with More Than Words which was such a huge, amazing, great song, great ballad. Yeah, they ballad. toured for me once, yeah. Oh, is that right? Well, well I got to tell you. It, on Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, they, we did a tour where they opened, we opened for them. Such a beautiful song. Yeah. And and yet, I, I still remember the interviewer, he said, you know, we regret it. And I don't know where he stands now, to be fair. I want to be fair to him. This was a long time ago, and people always change. People evolve, that kind of a thing. But it just made me sad. Todd Rudrin wouldn't do Hello, It's Me. Um, for many years, you know, that was the song people came for, or, or, or leave on Helm, may rest in peace. He would never do the song, um, uh, down by Dixie cause Joan Baez, you know, um, because Joan Baez recorded it and everyone thought, he thought that everyone would think that it's Joan Baez's song. And it was really his song. And I said, well, people come to hear you sing it, you know? So, 
there are a lot of artists like that, and um, you know they have their reasoning, and but I, you know I respect them; they're talented. Yeah, and it is theirs, and right. and I do. I want to be fair in that we we're all human; we all evolve at certain times and change in certain ways, and and this and that. Um, but I, I I love I love that song. No, that's why, one of the reasons why I was upset. I was like, oh, it's such a beautiful song. Hey, I gotta um, tell you, but I, I understand. I did it with a lot of my artists over the years. I would tell them to their face. You got to record this. I remember having a song, an argument with one of my artists. He wanted to do a new song um, right before intermission. I said, you can't do that. We won't sell any merchandise. You got to have the people walking out with a happy song that, you know, that you're known for. No one cares about the new songs. I, I love the line that at, the, at a recent camp, um, a young man interviews Paul Stanley. And Paul Stanley, he says to Paul Stanley, are you going on, you're going on this final tour. Are you going to do that 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 cut from the third album that was um, what was the word he used? Um, not intricate. Uh, it was that. Oh, I forgot the name. Uh, the obscure, the obscure cut on the third album of your Kiss record. And he said, No. He said, That's why it's called. It's an obscure hit. People don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of wisdom yeah. in that, right? In yeah, that experience. People, actually. Live, live concerts, you got to give the people the hits. That's it. You know. You know. Yeah. When the minute you start pulling out a new song. You know, everyone runs for the beer in the bathroom. Yeah. Well, yeah, keeping with this, too, with this film here, you, you say in the film that you, you I want to kind of connect the sports and the, the music here a little bit, because, again, something you said that I thought was fascinating was you kind of made the move from being a sports agent into music because you got bored. Now, I'm, I'm curious about that because I want to ask you to go back to that time that moment when you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm going to make this move from sports agent to music. Is this a bigger leap of faith than you let on in the film? Is there a chance you fall? No, because I'm, I was doing both the whole time. But what happened with the, the music business was that I had these successful tours with uh, Dirty Dancing and with the Monkees and with uh, Ringo, where I owned the merchandise. I owned the, the sponsorship. So the name of the company. I owned the, the, when the bookings, you know, we sold a lot of tickets, I had a percentage of tickets. So whereas in sports, all it is is show me the money and, um, you know, the team gets everything and they didn't want to even promote these, um, you know, artists, these, these athletes like they do today. Um, they just wanted the teams to benefit. The NFL was never into promoting my, my football players. Um, they just wanted it all for themselves. And it was very frustrating for me, whereas in entertainment, I could, if I got creative, I could make a lot of money. And the more creative you get, the more money you can make, and especially if it works. And it was working. Um, sports, it was bothering me the way the teams were treating these players. Um, it was bothering me that, you know, all, all your job really was, was like in the movie, um, you know, show me the money. And, and it just wasn't creative enough for me. So... It had really had nothing to do with even the money. It has to do with passion. I'm, I'm very, I'm a passion guy, as you can see. And if I'm the right passion for something, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stop, and I'll find something else to do. I believe enough in myself that if I can, if I can be passionate about something, eventually I'll make money. It might take longer than something else, but if you, if your goal is to be the best that you can be, for example, rock and roll fantasy camp. My goal is to change people's lives, and. You know, that's really through through the power of music. And what's also my goal is to find something I could do where I don't have to travel and, you know, see Chicago and Detroit and 
and, and you know, every in Cleveland. And, you know, it's one thing when you're a, a rock star and you're going from city to city and you have fans and they're screaming about you. But when you're in management, you're sitting backstage and you're bored, you know, and then on to the next show and then on the next show. Yes, it's your business. You have to be in Detroit. When your stars are in Detroit, you have to be in Detroit because they want you there. Um, so I just got bored with, with traveling and, and, you know, I got, I saw every shopping mall in the country, uh, and I just got bored. And, and that's why I, I really went to do the rock camp. I wanted to find a business that I can be involved in, change lives and, um, would not make as much money. I agree. Very hard to make money in that business, but I could also be home with a family and, um, be home with kids. And I, you know, I have children and, uh, you know, my first, uh, oldest kids, um, they saw me a lot on the road and I was talking to a manager the other day and we were saying that, you know, even if we were around, we weren't around because, you know, my kid would ask me a question to, to my face and I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be worried that one of my athletes was calling me or one of my stars was in Detroit performing. And, uh, you know, I had to answer his question. He's going to call me right back. And I couldn't really be attuned to my family. Um, now, last night, my daughter said, Dad, can you help me out with some homework? And uh, I said, yeah, bring it in. Let's do it. And I'll, I'll help you out. And so I just found I had to find I had to change my life. Yeah. It, it, it was interesting to me, too, in the film that at one point you, you were kind of thrown aback by Ringo Starr saying, Hey, hey, where are you going? We we want you to travel with us. We want yeah. you to be on tour, and and that made me think: Why was that so important to them? Because clearly, for you, you almost thought, "Why? why? What, what exactly am I am I going to do for you, or or you know, with you?" But why do you think at the time that seemed to be so important to these stars that you had to be there with them? Well, in 1986, when I was doing the Monkees, I was rehearsing them up at the Concord Hotel in the Catskills. And I got to meet um, Bill Graham. The late Bill Graham was a promoter, famous promoter, Fillmore East, Fillmore West. And he was, a, you know, he died in a, in a helicopter crash, but he was like the number one promoter in the world. And I'll never forget, I sat down with him one night and I said, Bill, what do you really do for a living? And he said, I'm the Rolling Stones tour manager. And I said, what do you mean? You're, you're Bill Graham, you're a promoter. What do you mean you're the Rolling Stones? He said, well, I got to go on the road with the Stones. Who else is going to tell Mick Jagger, get the F on the bus? And I realized at that time that when you represent a big star, you need to be on the road with them. Bob Dylan's manager is on the road with them. Springsteen's manager is on the road with them. Um, you know, because if you're if you have a show in Detroit, your business is in Detroit that night. If you have a show in Denver, your show your business is in Denver, and you have to be there with your business. So you know, I didn't realize it. I never used to go on the tours. I used to sent the tour managers that show up to like Chicago for a night and go back home. And I would go to LA, you know, the good cities. And, and but I really have to be on the road. And, and, you know, Ringo had asked me if I was going to be on the road with them. And I said, yes. And I, but that was agent talk, you know, I never really thought I was going to have to go on the road. And then I went on the road and my life changed, you know, Hey, I had to grow up, <laughs> you know, you go on the road for four months and, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, that's, that's a whole different thing. Uh, being around, these artists who, who you're 10 years younger than them. So you, you know, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not a bar guy. I don't sit at the bar either does Ringo or, but you know, I'm not a partier, uh, never was. Um, and so it was a whole lifestyle that I had to change and I learned how to play cards. 
Uh, Clarence Clemens taught me a lot. I learned a lot. And I have to tell you that while you see that great joke they played on me in the film, um, I got to tell you, I, I grew up that year. It, I learned more from these people. I mean, Joe Walsh, he's, he, he's a brain. He's, his intelligence is high above everybody else's. He, he really taught me a lot. Levon Helm, I learned a lot from these people. Because listen, these people have one notch above most people in the way of their talent. They had to endure a lot to get to become who they are, whether it was a Beatle, whether it was a Joe Walsh, whether it was a Dr. John. And you can learn a lot from them. You can the resilience. You learn about their passion. Um, and the passion to me is really what, you know, that, you know, how many musicians are there out there who have to make a choice in life to go find a job after high school and college. And then the ones who really took a chance, who were willing to tour, who were willing to play a dive just to make it because they had such belief in their music, belief in their career. And, you know, at rock camp, what a lot of these people, you know, they say to me after they leave camp, I say, you know, you're disappointed that you know, you're going to go home to your regular job. You know, you, you, you spend four days with the biggest stars and now you have to go. And I remember one lady saying to me, David, I learned to, ch I changed my life. I'm now, I stopped being a lawyer. I'm a, I write books. Um, I write, I'm the number one fiction writer for Amazon. I wrote 14. I said, what? She said, yeah, I went left your camp and I met Meatloaf and I met these, these incredible stars. And I said, I'm going to live with a passion that they have. I'm going to take a chance on my life like they did and their belief in themselves to become successful. And she went on to become a huge successful writer. So you can learn a lot from, from these stars. You know, I, I wrote a book a few years back called um, Rock Your Business, everything that you can learn from rock stars. And if you look at today's rock stars, you know, Aerosmith, they're still a brand. The Beatles, still a brand. Kiss, still a brand. I mean, how many brands around 50, 60 years ago, you know, that, that uh, how many companies aren't around? They weren't able to move with the times. And whereas music has been able to move with the times. And these artists have. And they're selling out arenas. And they're huge around the world. I mean, Kiss can sell out stadiums in South America. And Arrows, when they go on tour, they make more money than they've ever made. McCartney, too. So keeping their brand was a lot of work and a lot of, you know, intellectual stuff from, the, from their minds and the people that are around them. You know, what, what really resonates with me, too, about what you're saying is I think we make a mistake today sometimes in that if we want to become a, a great basketball player, oftentimes we'll study great basketball players. Okay. But, but truly great, what they study is the art of being great. They won't just limit it to just their own field that they want to be great in. They want to know what does it take to be great. And that's one of the reasons why I just love speaking to people who are great at things, anything, because I, f I find it to be just so fascinating, the story behind what it took to get there. And, and you mentioned <clears throat> your campers and what, what they come away with it, and that kind of reminds me of the story of Tammy in the movie. And Tammy talks about something that I was just discussing in my classroom with my college students uh, last week, which was this idea of she said she'll go to the camp and she'll be in a room with, you know, four different people, all of whom want to play a different song. And it's a song that she doesn't even know. And 
one of the counselors will just look at her and just say, wing it. And what, I, what made me laugh about that so hard is having the same conversation in my classroom with the students, giving them a project saying, you need to do this. You need to work together to come to this ending result. And my line to them is always, your job is to impose order on chaos. Now go. And they'll sometimes they'll look at me and they'll say, yeah, but what about this? And I'll say, no, 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 go. Figure it out. And I loved I love how the movie shows that if you can walk into a situation and say, hey, let's work together and figure this out, you can come away with something truly wonderful like they do. And it's amazing. And, and you know, I, th- I think I was thinking just now about negotiating a sports contract. You don't learn that. You just do it. You go in and you meet George Steinbrenner and you negotiate against him and you walk in with an attitude that um, – you know, I'm, I'm representing Lou Pinella here, and I got three things of inf- three inf- three points of information before negotiation. Number one, information, timing, and power. You need those three. Number one, information. I know the Yankees needed Lou, and he was a great ball player. And I had found out that although Steinbrenner said to me no one else is going to sign him, was because he got up at the owners' meeting and said, "Hey, don't sign any of my players because if you do, and you offer him ten dollars, I'll offer him twelve. So I had that information. Timing, I knew George was in a rush to make a deal because if he didn't make a deal with me, he would have lost loot of free agency. And three is power. Power is in the mind. If you think you have it, you have it. If you don't think you have it, you don't have it. And that to me is a big one. It's a confidence that people lack. And it's what I love about you know confidence. And again, going back to passion, it's only something that you can pick up and, um, and really learn. And it's, it's you, you know, you get it. And little successes at a time, um, but I I love it. To, you know, even with my kids, give them wings and let them fly. And and you know what? Let them make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes. But if they don't go out there and take a shot, you know, if they don't get up there to take a hit, they'll never be able to hit. Get, you know, get up to that plate. They'll never take a hit. So I'm a big I'm a big believer in that. And and it's great what you tell your students. And instead of um, you know feeding them, let them, figure it out. You can figure this thing out. Uh, you got to fumble, right? What I want to say about the film is that, to me, what I love most about the film that I, I'm hoping will resonate with people is that, okay, these people took a chance to play music. And now, but it's, it wasn't really meant for them. It was meant for people who, who, who are walking around with an idea. I have this app. I have this idea to a concept, an idea, and I'm afraid to do it. At any age, you hear these people are 40, 50, they're, they're, doing, they're taking a chance. You can do this with anything you want in life. You should be able to take a chance and, and go do it. So not just a musician, any, anyone who has an idea. You want to do a podcast? Do your podcast. You're hoping one day someone's going to buy it and pay millions of dollars? You know, you got you to do it. You got to get to the plate and do it. Yeah. Well, I have to ask, because you, you brought it up, what was it like in the room with George Steinbrenner? So, you know, it definitely was, was uh, he's very intimidating. Um, I write about him in my book, uh, my first book. I, I wrote a book on negotiations, putting it on the line. Um, and it, 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 I tell the story about me walking into his office and, you know, the desk was so long. He was sitting at one end. I was sitting at the other end. Um, 
And, you know, we were like a half a mile apart. And I just said, excuse me, um, I'm going to come closer. And I went to sit up right up. To, I just took myself up, you know, because I walked in there. So what, what are you here to talk about? You know, you knew what I was here to talk about. And I flew to Florida and I walked right up to sit right next to him. And I said, let's discuss, you know, lose contract. And he said, well, I, I gave you an offer and that's it. I said, and you could be a free agent if you don't like it. Well, I had made calls to every general manager of baseball for the pre- previous two days and asking them, you know, would you be interested in Lupinella? Would you be interested in Lupinella? I, I had a right to do that as an agent that, during that time. George had an exclusive amount of time to, to negotiate with me. Otherwise, he would have lost loads of free agency. And, and every general manager said, man, I'd love a Lupinella. I'd love him. I said, but I'm afraid to sign him because, you know, George can outbid me. And so I knew then that I had more information than he knew I had. And the information was that there was no way that Lou was really a free agent. And I turned to him and, and I said to him, well, I want to discuss, you know, um, you know, a deal. And he said, well, you know, like I said, he said, I made you an offer. And I said, you know, you're a free agent if you don't like it. And I said, no, we're not. We're really not free agents, George. You know, you told everybody at the owner's meeting that they better not sign your clients, whether it was Ron Guidry, it was Bobby Mercer. I said, you know, you said don't sign your players because I'm going to, I'm going to double the, you know, so all of a sudden, you're, uh, 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 I caught him. I caught him in a lie, really. And then we actually sat down and negotiated a deal. And I'll never forget, he said, uh, okay, you got it on one condition, that if he gains weight, there was a weight clause. I'm going to put a weight clause in there. And, um, and it was, later, you can Google it. There's a whole story about the weight clause in the middle of the season. But uh, he loved Lou. And I'll tell you one thing about George. I mean, no matter what you want to say about George Steinbrenner, you could tell all he wanted to do was win. Yeah. He would win. He paid those players because he thought that if he paid them, he could win. And that's all he wanted to do was win, 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 win. So I admired him. Yeah, right. Oftentimes, someone like that, you, it's pretty easy to admire their their focus, right? Their drive to say, look, I have one goal and, and I'm not going to compromise that goal. And there again, there's there are things you can learn from people like that as well. Yeah, successful people. Yeah, they are. You know, they're driven. Now, the question is, why are they driven? Okay, where are they? Where are they? How are they driven? And we can go deep into that. You know, many people are driven from childhoods. Uh, you know, and and you know, they don't. They came from poor childhoods, and they wanted to be successful. Um, you know, I came from a, a wonderful childhood, but you know, we weren't privileged at all, and. I wanted things in life and uh, I had goals. And um, so I aspired to, you know, make more money than my dad and become more successful. Um, I'm very lucky because um, my kids um, are, are really more su- are getting more successful than me. I have a daughter, Alana Mulstein, who's a, um, a nutritionist for a company called Beachbody and she's just killing it. But she's got a million five people on TikTok. I have a son-in-law who's a rabbi, a modern Orthodox rabbi, who's writing books, and he's got a huge synagogue. And, you know, my son Josh is now heavily in the market. And I'm just watching these kids. And all you all you pray is that your kids become more successful than you. And um, But the drive that, you know, that you can give your kids, um, or that we, we, you know, my dad was a Holocaust survivor. So, you know, I'm driven by, uh, you know, I'm driven by, you know, Hitler's, you know, um, hurting my whole family and killing a lot of the family and saying, you know, I'm going to become successful. And uh, I can show you that 
you know, you didn't kill, you, you know, that I could come here and represent a Beatle, represent a football player. And so, yeah, I, we all have something that drives us, you know, and drive, it's a big thing. Absolutely. And, and you were driven to start the, the rock fantasy camp. And then in 1997, correct? Right. And you say in the movie, in the film, <laughs> one kind of funny part, you say it was a, a financial disaster that year. Now, how close were you? How close were you to just shutting it down at that point? And what kept you going then? What? That's a great question because normally on any business, you would shut it down. And I remember calling Roger Daltrey. He's really been a great supporter of the camp and he loves it because he gives other musicians jobs. He's seen actual people go through life-changing experiences. And I said, Roger, I just can't keep this thing going. He said, well, end it. End it. Just stop it. End it. And everyone told me to end it. And what kept me going was I'd open up my email every day and someone would say, hey, my life's been changed. I got to hang out with Roger Daltrey. Not only hang out, but jam with him or Joe Perry. Or um, And then one guy wrote an email to me and that really changed my life. And that's Scott Keller in the film. He writes to me. Um, he's the head of one of the big heads of McKinsey. He says, I had the greatest experience of my life. My son and I bonded like never before. And um, it was incredible. And... I was really at, the, at my down, the wit's end. And uh, I called them up and I said, well, thanks for the email. Uh, I see you're with the biggest consulting company in the world. Uh, can I take you to lunch and, and get some advice? Because I'm really having issues with the, I'm running two camps. I'm running a camp here where everybody's having the greatest time and the rock stars are loving it. And they're meeting these amazing people and I'm just losing my shirt. And he said to me, um, he asked me a few questions. Call me back 20 minutes later. He says, I'm putting together six of my smartest people at McKinsey. And we're going to take you to dinner. And we're going to hear what your issues are. And we're going to give you some advice. And um, and it's my gift. I want, I want you to keep this thing going because I know you can change people's lives. So I went to dinner with these six people. I remember inviting a friend of mine to come to write down everything they say because I probably wouldn't be able to digest it so fast. I didn't want to bring a tape recorder. And uh, so um, he started off dinner by introducing me to all these people, and they were all McKinsey people, and they're all McKinsey graduates. So I had a, a young lady there who was a head of Ticketmaster. I had uh, someone else whose father um, works at McKinsey, but the, the, the son came, and he had a band called They Are Giants. And um, all these different people came, and he said, David, you have 10 minutes to speak to us. That's hard for me, 10 minutes, but tell us what, what the issues are. And then we're going to ask you questions for 10 minutes. And then basically you'll shut up and we'll tell you what we think you should be doing to turn this business around. And um, I did that. And uh, they went through, they said, can we go through your books? I said, please go through my books. Everything's open. Find out what the issues are. And they came back to me about two weeks later. And they said, David, if you're making $10, you're spending 12, spend nine. You know, it's just something very simple and it's very McKinsey-esque, I was told, that they, you know, they, they really, you know, keep a dollar for yourself. Um, and they really showed me. They went through my books. They found a lot of stuff that was wrong. Um, and they really helped me uh, put the business. And, I, you know, that's Scott Keller, just a genius. And as you can see in the film, how amazing he is as a father, as a human being, and um, dedicated to his son. And um, he really changed my life, too. Yeah, there's this this beautiful kind of father-son motif in there 
in the film. And, and it actually reminded me of speaking with my father about baseball statistics, the way that, that Scott speaks to his son about, you know, um, this band toured at this date and, and with this, you know, lead singer and with this guitarist. I was thinking back to talking about, you know, playing third base for the Mets in 1986 and this and that with my father. And even in, in a previous interview, uh, I was speaking with DC Glenn from Tag Team, and he was mentioning, he did the famous Geico commercial in 2020, where they, they sing their Scoop There It Is song, Everybody's So Happy. And he said to me, he went in there and he attached himself to the commercial because he was having memories of making ice cream with his father. And he said, for some reason, he said he thinks that what people love about that commercial so much is coming through from his relationship with those memories with his father. And I just thought, this is, again, kind of speaks to that the humanity that's in the film, that you don't have to be a fan of rock, per se, or heavy metal or right. any of that. You just you can just watch this as a good movie about learning how we can come together as a people to, to do great things and to enjoy connections that sometimes we lose rather easily today. This past summer, I, I opened the film in Jerusalem at the film festival, and I had an audience of people that were there. Half of them knew who the bands were, and the other half didn't know who the bands were. And a lot of people came because they were friends of mine or they were friends of somebody. And the people didn't know the bands. They, they came to me afterwards and said, listen, this film is not about rock and roll. This film is about people, exactly how you said it. And I, that was the most exciting thing for me. That That's why I really want people to see the film um, because it really shows about the human connection, about what people, you can learn so much in that film about life. And um, yeah, I'm so glad you pointed out because you don't have to be a music fan to really enjoy it. Yeah. And I have, I think this is a good question to end with here too, is what really moved me toward the end of the film is you are clearly present when these rock you know, people who come to the camp, these camp goers, when they come in and more than a few of them come up to you like they've known you for 20 years, you know, right. and they're giving you a hug and they're giving you a kiss on the cheek and they're saying, it's great to see you, David. And you know what? It's easy to overlook this. But being that you run this, you don't have to be there. Of course, you could have somebody go and greet them. And what I wanted to ask you was, why is it so important for you to be seen and involved so much in this? So what's interesting is I didn't want to be in the film, that I have to tell you, right away. It wasn't about, because I, I and I kept fighting with it with uh, Doug Blush and Jeff Rowe, and it said, keep me out of it. It's about the campers, and it's about the rock stars. And, and I'll tell you why, because I learned that from Ringo. Every time I go to Ringo with an interview, he'd say to me, well, give it to this rock star, give it to that rock star. And I learned a lot from him because it was always about, you know, the, the mentality of being in a band is, is um, you know, pushing everybody else. And I love that he did that. And I and, I, and I wanted to do the same thing. And they came back to me, you have to be in it. You have to be in it. So I'll be in it on a couple of conditions. You've got to really show who I am, the real me, you know, and, and my religious bringing, my upbringing, my dad. You know, to me, that's really what's important. And um, so... Why is it important? The reason it's important for me is I love to see these people go from day one to day four. Um, and I love to see how their lives change. 
because that's what it is. I can't play an instrument. I can't. I try to play the, you know, play the guitar. As you see in the film, I try to play the bass. I'm terrible. But if you can give this connection to people, if you can change their lives, if you can give, and giving is better than receiving, it is fun. It is fun. And I get to make new friends, and I've made some amazing friends. Um, and to see these people, you give them a life-changing experience, nothing like it. And again, they write to me all the time, and they call, and, you know, I'm running my business better, David, now. And, you know, uh, I'm, you know, my wife says I don't have road rage anymore. My wife says I'm happy. I just did this album. I did the songs. It is amazing what you what you can give people. And I'm very lucky at this age in my life and this career that I have that ability to take everything that I've learned in the music business and and give it back to people that really, really, really appreciate it. So that's, you know. I, I can't stress enough. Um, just see the film if you just want to make uh, to to kind of rebuild connections a little bit with with humanity, what it means, because so much of entertainment today as well is about creating drama and stress, and this is just like a, a, a palate cleanser. Palate cleanser to right? go in it's a great and way to and, say and it. really, I mean, it really is in in the sense of, and you know, people might think I'm. Um, you know, being hyperbolic or something, but I'm really not. Sometimes you need to be reminded that we have a lot of beautiful ways that we can connect with each other to create great things. And this movie reminded me of that. And you see these rock stars who, you know, you never look at them that way. I mean, that's why people are blown away. And Jimmy Fallon said, I love this film. And, you know, he, he also, you know, he said to Roger uh, Daltrey, he said, I love the reality that these people are real and honest. And the film's available. They go to our website, rockcamp.com. Um, the film's on Apple. Um, they can see it on Apple or Amazon. Um, you can see it on Amazon Prime. Um, or go to rockcampthemovie.com and you see all the different outlets. And um, so, yeah, no, thank you very much. I'm, you know, I do a lot of interviews and most of the people talk about the rock stars, rock stars. And I love that you got deep into it because that's really what it is for me. That, you know, thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. I think it comes across. I think you come across genuine as well that you really do love it for the people, for the bonds. I think it's a, it's a wonderful movie. Thank and you. and David, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for having me. And I really look forward to when I get to Albany, maybe in the, in the summer, we will connect. Well, I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with David Fishoff, a truly remarkable individual. And definitely check out the film Rock Camp. It will remind you that there is still much good in the world. If you haven't yet done so, hit the subscribe button, click the thumbs up, and leave a kind comment. That's the best way to support my endeavor to bring civility back to discourse. With every click, comment, and video that you watch, you bring our message in front of new eyes that might really need a bit more connection with the human spirit. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on the neutral ground, and have a great day.